Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. So we're going to turn this morning to the Word of God. Our last time formally going through the Sermon on the Mount, and actually it's the, the epilogue to the Sermon on the Mount that we're looking at, the end of chapter 7. I'm going to preach one more Sunday before not preaching for some weeks, um, and I want to uh, turn next week back into a portion of the sermon that, that is near and dear to me, and I'd like to give it an emphasis outside of the, the working through of the, the, the whole passage. That portion is Jesus talking about our fruitfulness. And I would like to, to, for one Sunday, speak about the importance of fruitfulness, the necessity, what, what qualifies as fruitfulness. But that's sort of a, that's a sermon that's out of place, out of time. It's not following the flow that we've established. And if you'll allow me to do that, I know you, you will. I, I'm grateful for your attention with it. Uh, this morning, our passage is Matthew 7. 28 and 29. And I'd like to ask you to stand with me. The passage is on the screen behind me or in front of you as you're watching from home. Let's read these words aloud. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, speak to us through your word, bring it to life in our midst, show yourself, reveal yourself through it, reveal who we are so that we may understand who you are and that in this self-knowledge we gain a knowledge of you and the glory of your Son who is perfection and the only Savior of mankind. And we pray that we'll see him as thus as we go through this passage. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to speak to you this morning as a man living in time, to people living in time, not as people who are living lives outside the flow of society and outside the, the strains and currents that are, that are going around in the world that are taking place and, and moving within culture as a whole, but as people who are part of this culture, as people who live within this time. It is an unusual time. I've been on this earth 60 years, and the only time that's been sort of like it, as I remember, was the, the late 1960s. Um, it's a time of questioning, a time of, of, of authority being questioned and rejected, um, a time of, of, of revolution. I think it's possible that this is a greater moment than the 60s were. I think it may be a moment that was inspired by the 60s and the rebellion of those days, the generation that I was just at the tail end of, really, and not really, really full-grown in the midst of that, that era. And now, as a man who, who Tommy said to me as he saw me paddling down the lake to our campsite, he said he wondered who that old man was uh, on our trip. So as an old man... I am now looking and seeing and saying this is a time that is unique, unique in my lifetime. The, I think the era that we're living through will, may well go down in history. 
that um, it's impossible to see and say this is this era when you're in the midst of it. You're just floating down the stream of it. And yet, it, with the, the benefit of years, you see some things that stand out, and that's the time we're in. I, I suspect that the, the time of revolution that we're living through will perhaps go down in history along with other famous times of revolution like the French Revolution, maybe the Bolshevik Revolution. We're seeing such a time. And so as we turn to the authority of Jesus, which is the theme of these final verses, the crowd being amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes, it's essential that we that we, we think clearly about authority. That we think about authority. And there is a certain dynamic that's at work in our culture that's always seen in the Bible and elsewhere in history, which is that bad authority leads to rebellion. Rebellion leads to bad authority. That's a, it's a vicious cycle. That bad authority produces rebellion. Rebellion produces even more wicked authority. And at some point, there needs to be an intervention by God such as he gave the people of Israel under the judges when a judge would come into an era where every man who was, who was alive was doing what was right in his own eyes. And then a judge would be raised up and there'd be authority for a time and things would have, be peaceful and then people would rebel and they'd go back to doing it. It was an age that did not remember Moses. It was an age that did not know the goodness of God. And so there is this dynamic that bad authority seen very often in the history of the northern kingdom, by the way, in the books of First and Second Kings uh, especially. You, you see bad authority producing bad people, which lead to even worse authority, and it just is this terrible cycle. And we're seeing the effects of that in our nation. An authority that embraced the murder of children in Roe v. Wade has created authorities under that authority. I'm talking about the authority of our government and the Supreme Court. has created authorities under that authority, sub-authorities, like the policemen that don't value human life. And so we don't value human life as a nation because our authorities have told us you can, you can dispense with human life. And are they surprised that police act like human life is not worth anything when they've told us that it's not worth anything? And when we as a people say, look, let's kill our children, that's a good way of dealing with the mistakes we've made in life. Kill them is... It any surprise that the police take that reaction towards us. What happened to that man, to Mr. Floyd in Minneapolis, was, was terrible and evil. It was awful, and it is the, the nature of the country that we live in. But as we consider the events that that has spurred, that were sparked by that evil deed, we have to, as Christians, acknowledge certain truths that are simply not being said about authority. And that in this time of rebellion, which says that black lives matter, we say, yes, they do matter, and black babies matter. That the lives of black children, the highest abortion rate in America, that they are precious. We say that Black lives matter, and for that reason we say no to drugs and sex without marriage. We say no to lives of rebellion against authority because black lives do matter, and white lives matter. 
And what has happened is that this movement that was a movement that began because of the murder of black men has become a movement in which is seeking to legitimize all rebellion and to attack all authority. And so we have to speak clearly about the value of authority and the need for authority and the wickedness of rebellion. As a young pastor in a church filled with many men who had fought in World War II, I was preaching about God's call for us to heed authority. And I made the point in a sermon that as a pastor, I had been thinking about the Revolutionary War and that I didn't know how I, as a pastor living in that era, would justify what was done by those who rebelled against the rule of Great Britain. And I can tell you that those older men who fought in the army in World War II didn't like me for it. Well, it's not right as a young man to question the American Revolution and to earn the opposition of, of older men in the congregation, and then as an old man to be silent at a time like this and not speak truth about this rebellion. We're living in a time of rebellion. And the evil authorities that are over us are truly evil. But the evil of authority is no reason to dispense with authority and to say that we will be under no authority. That is rebellion against God. It's remarkable that in a life that was filled with miracles and the miracles that were done by Jesus far exceeded those that are recorded in Scripture. John tells us this at the end of his gospel, saying he did many more signs than these, but these are written so that you may believe in believing in Jesus, you might have life in his name. So we know there are many more miracles, but it's remarkable that in the midst of this life filled with signs and miracles, that the authority of Jesus is most strongly evident in his day and most opposed <laughs> most fought by the people around him, most, most argued against by the leaders of his day and most opposed by the leaders of his day, is the authority of his, of his life when he's teaching. It's his teaching authority. In other words, it's not the miracles, and that's, those are great works of power and authority, but it's not his miracles. They did marvel at the authority he had to cast out demons and to say to demons, go away. But it was the authority of his teaching that galvanized people, that polarized people, that led people to be for him or against him. And this is the passage that we're in this morning, a passage that says, when Jesus had finished these words, crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching as having authority and not as their scribes. So it says he had authority, and then there's this comparison, and the people are making this comparison. And they say, he was teaching as one that's having authority and not as their scribes who were the official teachers of the law of Israel. You know that the scribes and the Pharisees were basically two intermingled groups that formed one group so that Jesus in his pronouncing woes says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees because you this, you this, you this. Each time he says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He says it a number of times. They're one class. They, they're separate in certain ways, but in the end they're together. They fulfill a function in the life of Israel that is an official function. When God established the Levites to be the, the servants of his temple, it wasn't just that they were to be servants of his temple. They didn't all live, if you remember the Old Testament, you remember that they didn't all live in Jerusalem, all in houses, all right around the temple, but they were spread throughout Israel. 
There were Levitical towns in every tribe of Israel, and those Levitical centers reflected the, the duty of the Levites, the scribes, the priests, to teach the law to Israel. They were Israel's teachers. And so these scribes are the teachers of Israel. They are the ones who are to teach Israel the things of God, to call Israel to obey the law of God. They're to explain the law. They're to call people to obey the, God, the law of God. And what, what we read is that they had no authority in their teaching. They marvel, the crowds marvel at Jesus. And we're told this here on this occasion. And there are several other occasions. Uh, in Matthew, we're told this at the, at the Sermon on the Mount, that they marvel at his authority because it was different from that of the scribes. Mark tells us that he preached one day in the, the synagogue in Capernaum. And that the people marveled in exactly the same way, saying, whoa, this authority, it's so much greater than the scribes. And so it's in two different spots on two different occasions. Luke also records Jesus preaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. And so whether he's recording the same event as Mark, all three of the synoptic, the same view gospels, all three of them record people marveling. It is possible that Luke's occasion, which he records Jesus preaching in Capernaum, was a different one than the one that Mark records. It seems like there are enough differences that it's... Uh, could be a distinct occasion and so it's possible it's three distinct occasions three times Jesus is preaching three separate events one recorded by each of Matthew Mark and Luke saying that the, his authority when he taught was immense and that the people when they listened to him were blown away by the authority that he showed and they were specifically comparing it with that of the scribes those who were to be their teachers and they're saying wow they're deficient look at Jesus why can't they teach like that in the midst of all his demonstrations of authority, it's his teaching that is the authority that is the most galvanizing and polarizing. In fact, we, we find that his teaching is, is a great problem. Uh, the miracles Jesus did did not offend the Pharisees in the absence of his teaching. The religious leaders were not as offended by what Jesus did as by what he said. How do I know this? Well, I can prove it in, in one particular way. We're told in, I believe, every one of the Gospels that Jesus cleansed the temple. John records that Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry and the Pharisees and the scribes were offended by it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record a second cleansing that takes place at the very end of his life, on his, in the last week of his life, in the Passion Week. Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he again cleanses the temple. The beginning and the end of Jesus' life of ministry, his ministry years, are bookended by cleansings of the temple. What we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the, the one at the end of his life, is that he goes in on one day and cleanses the temple, and then he leaves Jerusalem, spends the night outside of town, and at the end of that night, he returns to Jerusalem, and he's teaching in the temple courts. So on the next day, he goes in, and he starts teaching in the courts, and it's on that second day, when he's teaching, that the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the priests, come to him and say, why are you doing these things? By what authority are you doing this? They object to the authority, not at the moment that he executes the, the acts of cleansing. They don't object while he's going through with a whip. Maybe they're afraid of the whip. I don't know. 
I don't think that's it. They don't say anything that day. But when he comes back and he starts teaching, then they go to him and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? It's clearly tied to his teaching. His teaching offends them. They can live with his doing things. But the teaching that Jesus engages in is terrible in their eyes. And it's terrible in their eyes in part because they see so clearly that they're deficient, that they do not have that same authority. They teach, but there's no power, there's no light, there's no no glory, no reflection of heaven in their teaching. They sit in Moses' seat. Jesus said the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, do as they say, but not as they do. They're sitting in Moses' seat, that which Jesus speaks of when he says you must do as they say as teachers of the law, is, is that they are they're followers of Moses. They're from the same tribe. They're called to be teachers. They sit in Moses' seat. But the thing that Moses had when he taught Israel is lacking in them. Remember what Moses had? He'd been in the presence of God on the top of the mountain. He'd come down from the mountain to teach the people the law, and his face glowed with the, the, the glory of God. His face was glowing because he had been in the presence of God, and these guys had no glow. And everyone knows it. There's no glow. They sit in Moses' seat. They don't glow with Moses' glow. Now, I want to speak about the authority of Jesus and how it's distinct from the authority of the scribes and Pharisees. And I want to do so first in a number of ways that are generally visible in the Gospels, comparisons that are, that are made in the Gospels and that are evident that we, can, that we can infer things from about the authority of Christ. And then I want to turn to to a, a basic final point and another distinction between Jesus and his teaching and the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, which I think we need to hear today. I want to compare the authority of Christ with the authority of the scribes and the Pharisees. And I want us to consider Christ's authority and the crowd's ultimate reaction to that authority because the authority that you place yourself under, the authority that you accept, the authority that God has placed you under and that you heed, that you embrace, that you live by, is the character of your life. Your life is determined more by the authority that you live under than anything else at all. And there are always competing poles of authority, centers of authority in your life, in my life, in every life. Competing centers of authority that are claiming equally your allegiance, seeking to have you follow them. They're always there. It's in every area of life, there are competing poles. If you work at a business, there's one boss and there's another boss, and they compete. And you know that they're fighting for authority. You go to college at a university, and uh, perhaps you've taken 
English classes. There's the authority of the professors of English. And there's the authority of the professors in the engineering department. And it's a very different form of authority. And it's making an appeal to students and saying, live by one life, live by the other. The authority of professors in the English department today is often an authority derived not so much from knowledge of English literature or of literature, world literature, or an ability to write well, but from the professor's ability to narrate a tale of grievances and to put those grievances of his life or her life or of the class that they identify with to work in order to deconstruct the literature of the past. They approach literature as though it's the way of understanding oppression. Literature is usually the winners in the battles of oppression. And so they understand literature as the works of the oppressors. And they try and read it through the eyes of the oppressed. And so the authority of the English department is that of deconstruction. We're going to take this apart and we're going to understand what really lies behind this work by Hemingway or Lawrence of Arabia or by, by Shakespeare. It's an, a subjective approach. It's based in grievance and victimhood, claiming oppression and blaming oppressors. <laughs> it's changed even from the authority of the English department in my era when the power of grievances and deconstruction were already well established. I and mean, these things were not, are not new today. They were going on in the 70s. And though a star professor in my, in my year, in my college's English department, sympathized with that approach as he went along and came to follow it and became caught up in the tide of it, I remember when he was new and young and right out of Harvard with his PhD at my college, that he began his career and was hired as an expert on the life and writing of T.E. Lawrence, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. He'd written his dissertation on Lawrence. He possessed objective knowledge of Lawrence, he rejected those who tried to describe Lawrence as some kind of tormented, closeted gay living out his oppression. He was not willing to see us take that route. And I know this because he accused me of plagiarism because I had said something in a, in a paper that he thought was reflecting this view. And it really wasn't. I hadn't, he said, you plagiarized the idea. And he was offended that I was not dealing with factual things, but reading into them. I probably was wrong in that I hadn't plagiarized it. You compare the authority of a campus English department. I've been describing it, and if you've been in an English course or a literature course in a major university in recent years, you know what I'm speaking about. Compare the authority of the professor there with the authority of the professor of mechanical engineering, and it's absolutely two different worlds. It just, there's no comparison, and they despise each other. The professors of mechanical engineering believe that there is an objective right and wrong and that certain shear forces will make the bridge break and that you can't do it that way or the bridge will break and people will die and it's objective and you just can't do it. You know? It's not about how you feel. It's about how things work, how things are. And so you have two worlds based on two competing forms of authority and they live together in the same university very uneasily. They are not friends of each other. This is the case in every area and realm. You have various sources of authority 
And the ones that you follow, the ones you embrace, and the ones that you willingly submit yourself to are the story of your life. It's as clear as comparing the average, and I'm saying average, I know there are exceptions to the rule, the average English major with the average engineering major. They have different forms of authority they've placed themselves under, and they look very, very different from each other, don't they? They are not at all alike because of the type of authority that they have embraced. The story of your life is the story of the authority that you have lived under and reacted to, often by embracing, sometimes by rejecting. Wise parents who raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, whose authority is embraced by their children, provide an almost unmatchable start in life. Yet not every child of such a family embraces the authority of that wise mother or father, and so by rejecting, they start down a path of turmoil and difficulty. And there are children of wicked parental regimes who hunger for something better. Perhaps they see it elsewhere in another family and they receive the blessings of authority that they didn't have in their birth home. The authority that you embrace is the, the story of your life. It's who you are. So the crowd marvels at Christ's authority, the authority that's found specifically in his teaching. What do they see? How is that authority distinct from that of the scribes and the Pharisees? And then I'm going to list for you seven ways that they are, in general, character different, and then one specific form that's, I think, essential to understanding the stories of the crowd, the stories of Christ, the stories of, of, of Scripture about how people follow Christ and many didn't. First thing we see in the authority of, of Christ is that his authority is, is not conveyed by anything or anyone external to himself except God, the Father. It was not an authority based in wealth, conveyed by a, a, a degree from the school of Gamaliel, you know, from the Harvard of its day. There was nothing outside Jesus that gave him authority other than the word of God and the prophets of the Old Testament, but that was not really listened to by anyone in his day. It was not a, an authority that was referential. It was not derived from something extrinsic outside. The Pharisees in their teaching always quoted other authorities. They said, as so-and-so wrote, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, they'd go round and round quoting authorities. They do it still today. Rabbinic writing is just like this. So-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and finally they might essay forth to make a little comment at the end of quoting all these authorities. That was not the methodology of Christ. He says, but I say to you, others have said, others have, have written, you've heard it said, but I say to you, I say to you, intrinsic. Be aware of where the authority is claiming it's, it's the basis of its power from. Be aware of what the authority is resting upon. Jesus taught without referring to others, and he did not seek to have others vouch for him. God did send one who vouched for Jesus, and that was John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But other than that, no one spoke for Jesus. And the majority of his ministry days were spent in silence. No one spoke well of him. No one said things about him. He did not need the praise of men, and he did not seek it. Contrast that with the religious establishment of our day, and you're going to see night and day. Religious establishment of our day lives on the blurbs that others give their books. So-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. I'm speaking at this conference with so-and-so, and look at who I keep as my company. I am friends with this person and this person, and we're part of this movement. We're all together, and it's all referential. It's not intrinsic. It's entirely based on those I'm around. Look at who my friends are. Look at who I deal with. Look at what I... I some years ago, I went to a revival service, a healing service done by an evangelist from the subcontinent of Asia. And this man began his service but with a 25 to 30 minute movie that he showed in the sanctuary of the church we're in, which had person after person telling how great he was and how he had healed them of this disease and that thing and how he'd raised the dead. And then he came on with lots of music and applause. <laughs> you go, this is not the authority of Jesus. Jesus does not need other people to speak. He does not live by the number of influencers. You know, today authority is how many people say you're important. How many people like you on Instagram, follow you on Instagram, like your posts on Facebook? You know, I'm somebody because why I have a million people who say I'm somebody. And for many of us, that's what you aspire to. You want to be the popular kid in your class. You want to be the one who's something because everyone else says they're something. They're cool. It's not Jesus. It's not him at all. It has nothing to do with that kind of crap. Jesus' authority and teaching was conveyed only by God. The Pharisees and the scribes, these people that he's being compared with, they're desperate for approval. Desperate, desperate. Jesus says to them, you'll go over land and sea to make one convert, you know? They so want people to like them that they'll do anything to get one convert. They seek the chief places so that people will say, oh, see them. They pray publicly. They go around wearing mourner's clothes and fasting. They're, it's all about how they look and the people being impressed by them. And the frustration of their lives is that as they go on and on, the people are following Jesus and not them. And they get more and more so that at the end of the ministry of Jesus, when he's raised Lazarus from the dead just before Passion Week, They turn to each other and they say, we're, we're lost. The whole world. See, the whole world has gone over to him. That's their idea of authority. The whole world is with him. What can we do? Think of the authority of secular men like Winston Churchill. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I've, I've quoted before my dad who said that he had the feeling, and he thinks most Americans did before World War II, that Winston Churchill, by his bulldog tenacity, his, his incredible faith, not in God, but in himself and in his nation, willed his nation through to victory. He didn't look to anyone else. Everyone was against him. Jesus is alone, and he speaks with authority. What a glory. Second, it's not, first, it's not 
It's not extrinsic, it's, it's intrinsic. It's within him, it's internal. Second, Jesus' authority in teaching is unlike the authority of today, which is always coercive. Jesus was utterly non-coercive. He wasn't bending arms and hitting people with billy clubs and running around with a sword or a gun. He wasn't kneeling on people's necks. He wasn't doing that kind of stuff. He didn't need to do that kind of stuff. True authority doesn't do that kind of stuff. I can remember talking to a policeman here in Toledo who was a really sharp guy. He's retired from the Toledo Police Department as a captain. And uh, I, I sat by him at Panera 15 years ago. I'd sit by him and he'd be studying bridge. He'd be reading books on bridge. And I finally, get, over the weeks that we sat by each other outside, I drink my drinking coffee and work on sermons, him reading about bridge, we, we started talking with each other. And betraying some of my biases and my, my, my real pride, I, I finally, at one point, I said to him, sir, you know, I can't remember his name. I didn't say sir. I said, used his name. But I said, you're, you're surprising to me. I said, um, I said, I, 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 when I've been around policemen, that usually because they're, they're after me for a speeding ticket or something, you know, I don't regard them as people who are bright. I, I'm, I'm angry at them, you know. And so and you're obviously, I said, how many of the police department are like you? He said, oh, the majority. He says, they're really smart people, which I should know, but I didn't. And so I, he said to me, he said, you know why the police department gets a bad image? He says, I felt that the worst thing that's happened to policing over the, my lifetime has been the police shows on, on TV. He said, the police shows week after week show cops going and beating people up, fighting people. He said, I t have taught cops my whole life. And he said, and I teach them, and I believe firmly that if you have to fight the guy in the domestic disturbance, you've already lost because your authority should win it without your having to even fight. Now, this is the glory of Jesus, you know? He's not fighting. He's utterly non-coercive. And in this, he reflects his father. Now, people want to say that God is a bully, God is unjust, God is a father, patriarch, he is, he's dark. But which of you has had God come into your life and say, kneel down, I'm going to put my knee on your neck? Now, you've never had that from God, have you? You know? It's not the way God approaches people. People hate God because he's gentle and kind. They don't hate him because he's a bully. Jesus is non-coercive. He doesn't bear the sword. He's a lamb going to the slaughter. He's gentle. He suffers himself rather than making others suffer. His authority is founded in an immense power that is constrained, that is contained, held back always by mercy. Mercy. Has the woman in, in adultery set free? Now, we need to remember that Jesus warns that he will no longer be this way when he returns, that he will come bearing a sword. We need to understand that. But Jesus is gentle. How different this is from every earthly authority. Those selfish and coercive authorities and those selfish and coercive rebels who would be authorities, you know, everyone went after the Bolsheviks because they railed against the the, the awful coercive nature of the, of, the, of the Tsar. 
And everyone said, yes, be our champions, Bolsheviks, the communists in Russia. Be our champions. And they got the power. And what did they do? Well, pretty soon they were the ones kneeling on the necks. They were the ones that were the oppressors. Jesus says to his disciples, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their great men exercise authority over them, but it's not to be this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Third, Jesus' authority and teaching came from deprivation rather than abundance. It was like Elijah. He was like John the Baptist. He was like all the great leaders. It wasn't because they were wealthy. It was because they were willing to be poor. They lived, they lived a path, a life that was a life of turning aside from, from wealth and luxury. And this was Jesus. Fourth, in his teaching, Jesus had authority because he was always addressing heart issues rather than external things. He's going to the heart. The scribes and the Pharisees, they loved their luxury. And they loved going for little things, but they never touched the heart. Fifth, Jesus' authority and teaching never came from playing the victim. He was the purest victim ever, the only victim in all of mankind's history who was truly a victim and not a sinner. And yet he never played the victim card, never a passive-aggressive, never played up hurt and resentment to achieve power, never, never. Sixth, Jesus' authority was backed and buttressed by his clear personal righteousness and that's distinct from the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus said, do as they say but not as they do because everyone knew that they were wicked. Seventh, Jesus' authority and teaching was personal. He knew and loved his sheep. He taught the crowds but he was equally at home, especially at home with the 12. He was personally involved with those he taught. He loved them and the people knew that and they gave him authority. But I want to end by saying, all right, there are many ways in which Jesus' authority is evident in his character, and that would be flowing out in his teaching. There is one thing that we've got to deal with, and that is the fact that these crowds that marvel at his authority are not there at the end. They marvel at his authority. They're there at the end of his life. This is the beginning of his life. They're there at the end as well. The crowds on the day when he comes in in his triumphal entry, they're huge. They're praising him. They're singing his praises. They're using the Old Testament. And then later in the week, they're just not there. I mean, they have disappeared, and they don't come back. They're not there. What happened? You go, what happened? They're marveling at his authority. How could it be that they're not there? And I want to say to you that there is one thing about the teaching of Jesus that is unique and stands out above all other things between him and the scribes and the Pharisees that we must come to grips with and that we must embrace in the authorities that God places in our lives. And that is Jesus is constantly, you read through this sermon, he's saying no. He tells his followers no. He doesn't just say no to those black people who are rebelling in the inner city, wicked people, you know. Lots of us have heard that. But he says to the white people who are following him, you, you, you need to listen to God. You are a problem. It's easy to say to the Black Lives Matter group, oh, look at them, look at them. But you who rely on your guns 
You who won't wear a mask, you who won't, you know, the governor's not going to tell me what to do. Why do you rail against those people and not come to grips with your own rebellion? Jesus speaks to his friends and says, no. That's something the Pharisees and the scribes never, ever do. They will not go to no with those who are their friends. This sermon is a series of no's. The Beatitudes, each is a rejection of things of earth. Rejection, rejection, no, no. Things of this life that his followers are going to want. No to popularity, no to wealth, no to worldly ease, no to vengeance, no to impurity. No to living at war with others. Blessed are the peacemakers. The Beatitudes end with Jesus warning the crowd that they will suffer if they pursue the course he's laid out for them. Blessed are you when all men speak ill of you when you're persecuted. He's saying to them, no, 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 you don't get it all now. No. And you're blessed in that. You should be happy in that. They will stand out like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for saying no. That's the glory of their lives. They are not to lust in their hearts. They are not to lust with their eyes. If their eyes lead them into lust, they're to pluck them out. If their hands cause them to sin, they're to cut them off. No, no, he says, no to sin, no to this kind of thing. No. And this, this no, this no is why the crowd is not there. They're not there because he's told them no. The angriest, most bitter people in the world are those who have rejected a godly no. Think of the angriest and most bitter people you know, and they have at some point been confronted by God through some leader, and they have rejected it, and they have become paragons of rebellion and bitterness because they will not hear a no. And this is America today. The world is crying out. America's crying out for someone to say no. You know, for some mother to stand up. Did you see the video that was being shown over and over again on our, uh, on our canoe trip? Video of a protest at a library. Any of you see this video? They were chanting in the lobby of a library, I think it was. And it was uh, one of these protest movement ch chants. And... Uh, and this little guy, little Asian guy, comes out in between their shouts. He goes, what does he say? He says, hey, I think. And then they give another chant, and he goes, hey. And they give another chant, and he goes, hey. And they finally, they start looking at him. He says, this is library. <laughs> Everyone goes, oh, we're shouting in a library. The world is begging for someone to say no for some leader of a corporation to say no for some president to say to his own followers no no it's a wonderful word god's saying to you through christ no stop going that way it's a bad path we have to hear god's no 
Some of you have never embraced God's no. You don't understand that his no was given you like my no to my children as they were running by a roadside given to you to protect your life from terrible consequences. Jesus says no, but he lives yes. You can go to heaven. You can be a child of God if you accept his no and embrace the world of yeses that flow from saying no to that and yes to Jesus. Have you said yes to Jesus, this, this prince of no's? This king of, you shall not do this. Have you said yes to him? Do you know Jesus as your savior? If you know him as your savior, you've listened to him saying no, and you said, he's right, he's right. I will listen. I ask you to say yes to the nose of Jesus. Yes to his nose. Yes to his saying, you shall not go this way. Yes to all these things. Because at the end of that path, the end of this journey, your house is founded on a rock and you live when all the rest die. That's what's at stake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus Christ, for his great life and his, his terrible and wonderful death. And I pray, Father, that we'll learn from him, that we'll come under authority, that we'll listen to you and not reject your nose, delivered from whatever mouth they come from. May we listen to you, Father, as you speak to us directly through your Son and through the authorities that you've placed over us. And may we not become the bitter, angry mob that have been told no and can't stand it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.